Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. When I sold my company, I'd never seen that much money in my bank before. <laughs> so it kind of like threw me off quite a bit. <laughs> and I would like just stare and like check each day if they were going to take the wire back. People didn't see Black women as entrepreneurs. They saw us as employees, but not necessarily as entrepreneurs. The challenge right now is that we still have this really heavy hand of racism. It has nothing to do with our economic system, but at the same time has everything to do with <laughs> economic system. There was only about seven venture funds that had actually even invested in a Black woman. This was out of like hundreds and hundreds of venture funds. This is 2016. This isn't 1999 or 1979. This is 2016. When you're an entrepreneur of color, it's really important to know that the universe is conspiring for your greatness. Know that the universe really wants you to win, even when it doesn't seem like it. And I'm a living example of that. That's Catherine Finney, CEO of Genius Guild, a venture studio that invests in black entrepreneurs. She recently released a new book provocatively titled Build the Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business if You're Not a Rich White Guy. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of The Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk with Catherine because two years after the murder of George Floyd, a surge of business efforts to address what she calls the invisible hand of racism has yielded uneven results. Catherine has been uncommonly creative about generating new opportunities for disenfranchised groups, from giving direct microgrants to black women entrepreneurs to shedding clear light on funding imbalances in venture capital. She's a steadfast believer that entrepreneurship is an essential tool for building a more equitable society and offers specific lessons on how to amplify any startup's strengths. Greatness is out there for each of us, she argues, if we can apply our unique talents freely. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. 
How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Catherine Finney, CEO of Genius Guild and author of the new book, Build the Damn Thing. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So it's just over two years as we record this since George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. And since that time, many businesses and business people have made proclamations about investing in Black entrepreneurs. It can be hard to see, though, how the landscape has actually changed. You've been on this journey, on this mission for quite a bit longer than two years. You founded a nonprofit called Digital Undivided in 2012, dedicated to helping Black women entrepreneurs and other disadvantaged groups. Since George Floyd, you've taken on a bunch of new efforts, Genius Guild, the Dooney Fund, and of course, the book. And I'm interested in talking about all of those things. Can you take us back to where you were when you first heard about George Floyd and how you set out on the course that you've been on over the last two years? I am from Minneapolis, and I actually went to elementary school about six blocks away from where George Floyd was murdered. And so I had received a text from my niece, who is a young activist on the ground in Minneapolis, that a Black man had been murdered in a way that was suspicious. And throughout the day, like the news started to come out of what happened. And of course, the video was released. I never watched the video. I have no desire to watch it. I say to people, I've witnessed enough. I don't need to witness anymore to know what happened. These are my people, not just because they're African-American, because literally these are the people I grew up with in Minnesota. So it was a gut punch. It was, what can I do? What type of resources can I galvanize? And I think we're probably the first generation of African-Americans who could say this, is I could say to my niece and to her friends, do what you have to do and we got you. If you need a lawyer, we got you. We can bail you out. We now as a community have resources to fight. Whereas if I think of my parents' generation and generations before that, they couldn't. The workplace and the business community has often been marred by racism. Your great-grandparents were among those who lost their businesses in Greenwood at Black Wall Street in Tulsa 100 years ago. But you've said that market-based solutions can positively impact racism. Why and what do you mean by that? If we're left alone in a market-based system, it can positively help with racism. What we've seen in history is how outside forces that have nothing to do with capitalism and nothing to do with markets come in to disrupt what would be the natural flow. My grandparents had a restaurant and they had a grocery store on Greenwood. What would have happened if their fellow business people were allowed to progress without this hand of racism coming in? Who knows what type of wealth would have been created if they had just been left alone. The challenge right now is that we still have this really heavy hand of racism. It has nothing to do with our economic system, but at the same time has everything to do with our economic system. And for many people, we want to live a creative life in which we control. And entrepreneurship is a tool in which we get to do that. And my community hasn't always had that opportunity. So I do think market-based economies and systems can be really helpful in doing that. 
But how do we deal with this other hand that's in there that doesn't allow the markets to act in the way that markets are supposed to act? When I look at your last two years, there's Genius Guild, there's Dooney Fund, there's the book. It sounds like it sort of all links together as a plan. Did it start that way? Absolutely not. That's like the story of my life. I grew up with parents who I saw take a big risk and win. And I think that's a big deal for any child to see your parents take a risk and win, but particularly a young African-American girl, seeing her parents take this big leap and it turns out to be good and, and good things come from it. The Dooney Fund actually came because it was April 2020 and Digital Divided had authorized a bit of money to go to some of our portfolio companies who were really struggling because it was very, very hard to receive the PPP loans then, especially if you didn't have a private banker. And most people of color and most humans in general don't have private bankers. And so I was like, well, what if I just give out a little bit of money just so that people know that I see them? Because I started off as an entrepreneur myself. I know how hard it is to make payroll. And I know how hard it is to manage through a difficult time. And so it was just kind of like, baby, you can do it money. That's what I call it. Like your grandma gives you a little bit of money. It's not a lot of money, but it's like showing that she believes in you. We gave out over $150,000 worth of what we call micro investments to over 1,500 Black women entrepreneurs in a six-week time period. It not only gave me the energy I needed to figure out what was next and how I could help change the world. But strangely enough, it had a very big impact on the staff of my company and my organization who at the time were feeling completely helpless too. And the impact was, it changed my life. I had people who emailed me and said the email that I sent them telling them to continue and that they should continue on, they pasted above their computers and looked at it every time they thought that they couldn't do it. We had people who took the small amount of money and changed their websites to sell masks and end up selling almost $100,000 worth of masks and then gave $10,000 back to the organization. And we only gave them $100. So the return on investment on that was like crazy, right? All you had to do to get this microinvestment was to be a Black woman, identify as a Black woman, and have a website that we can check to show that you were actually in business. We're not going to have you jump through 10 billion hoops for this. The goal was to get you the money quickly so that you can use it in whatever way you needed to use it in order for you to keep moving forward. The way the recipients have used this money, this little $100 is incredible. And it's a true testament to Black women, to our path in entrepreneurship, the fact that we're, you know, one of the most resourceful groups of people in this world. So you're at Digital Undivided. You launched the Dooney Fund as a way to give, really. I mean, I know you call it investments and there were returns to some extent, but these were really grants. So where does, out of this, where does Genius Guild come in? Because Genius Guild is a very different kind of model. You're kind of going to the other end of the opportunity spectrum for starting a business, Right. Digital Divided was originally going to be Genius Guild, but it was too early. The market wasn't there. At that time, it was in 2012. And so we then pivoted to a nonprofit. People didn't see Black women as entrepreneurs. They saw us as employees, but not necessarily as entrepreneurs. And it wasn't until we did a report called Project Diane 
And we did it in 2016, where we documented the landscape for Black women and later Latinx women in venture capital. And the report was shocking to the point where originally we were going to do it internally and just keep it internally that we had to make it public. And it embarrassed the venture capital industry in many, many ways <laughs> because it was less than 11 Black women had received over a million dollars in funding. This was out of like hundreds and hundreds of venture funds. This is 2016. This isn't 1999 and 1979. This is 2016. The average raised by Black women-led startups was $36,000 at that point. The average raised by mostly white, mostly male failed startups was 1.4 million. So we weren't even raising enough to fail properly. And that's when I kind of knew that eventually I was going to be able to do Genius Guild. That once they were kind of embarrassed, then people start to open up and see capital in different ways, particularly for people of color. And it was when George Floyd was murdered that all these things came together. Digital Divided, the Dooney Fund, to show what capital can do for our communities when you give them access. And so I had this idea, I want to try to do something a little bit different in venture and then also convince some other people. Barbara Clark, one of the most prolific investors in Black women. Most people don't know her, but should know her. She came in as like our lead LP. And then we start to get other folks involved too. And then Genius Guild was created. All our equity investments are in Black women. We have an unaudited mocha of 2.7, which is amazing. Even our LP investments were limited partners in other funds led by Black investors. Even they're doing well, like everyone's doing well. And we're kind of proving this thesis, which is Black entrepreneurs generate returns for their communities, for their investors, and also themselves. And is that what made sort of the philosophy, because you described Genius Guild as being something different. Part of what's different is who you're investing in. Part of what's different is the level of return or the kinds of return or where the return goes? Well, the return goes back to the community because we trust that the community knows what's best to do with the money. We trust Black communities. And if you look at traditional modes of philanthropy, impact investing, and even traditional investing, within that is like this lack of trust of communities. And it's not just within the Black community, but if you look at investing in Latinx communities, within women, it's this inherent distrust that somehow we don't know how to handle money or that we don't know what to do with money. And that's so incredibly false because we've been so resource poor for so long that we are probably some of the best money managers because <laughs> we have to keep it. We don't have a safety net. And so for us, the money goes back to the entrepreneurs, but our entrepreneurs happen to live in the communities that they serve. They happen to hire other people of color and give chances for other people of color to get into the system, to build equity within companies, to be early employees, all of these things that are really important to wealth building within a community. And as an investor, not only do I get the return in terms of the monetary return, but I also get the return of helping community build, essentially, and create additional role models who other folks can see and look towards as they build their companies. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. 
Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Before the break, we heard Genius Guild CEO Catherine Finney talk about how George Floyd's killing prompted her to take bold action in support of black entrepreneurs. Now she talks about her new book, Build the Damn Thing, and key lessons that founders might overlook. She also digs into the shortcomings of corporate DEI efforts and how assumptions by most venture capital firms undermine black founders. While starting a business isn't for everyone, she says, entrepreneurial thinking should be. Her overarching message is hopeful, that the universe wants us to win. The title of your book is Build the Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business If You're Not a Rich White Guy. So what prompted you to write the book? I started writing the book actually several years ago and was thinking of it, just working with Dijon Divide and working very closely with women of color entrepreneurs, myself being a woman of color entrepreneur, and just the advice they were getting was just horrible. It was not applicable to us. If I come in to a meeting demanding what I want, it's not going to be read the same as you. Like, I guarantee it's not going to be read the same as you. And so I had never seen a business book that talked about how to utilize your family to help you as your first employees. But every person of color I know, their family was somehow involved in their business, whether it was informal or formally. And it was just never acknowledged in any business book I read. Or the fact that, you know, I'm a mom and I have to navigate things very differently. I can't just get on a plane and leave tomorrow. I have to figure out who's going to take care of my child and feel comfortable leaving my child with that person. And all these things were never addressed in any business book because they were all written by like rich white guys or they would make this assumption that you can go and raise, you know, 50K from your family. It was all these assumptions in these business books and being a person of color and just thinking about the things that my family has done for me that wasn't a check. It wasn't an exchange of money, but it was definitely worth a lot. My mother, when I started Digital Divided and the first couple of years we were okay. And then we moved to Atlanta to start this incubator. And I was just struggling. I was like a new mom, like didn't find good childcare. My husband at the time was traveling all the time too. It was just like a mess. And I called my mother, as many of us often do, and was like crying. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I, I'm stressed. I just, I don't know what to do. And she's like, I'll move to Atlanta and I'll help you through this period. And she was with us for four years. And I think about that. It would have been thousands and thousands of dollars a value that she created that wasn't her writing me a check for $100,000, $200,000, but her time, her love, you know, cooking dinner for us, washing clothes. I mean, like all of these different things that you can't put a price on, but is valuable as an entrepreneur. It was peace of mind. So those sort of resources I talk about a lot in the book that our families bring and to look at them as resources. 
had never read a business book that even talked about those things and even thought about them. I mean, when I go through your book, like the lessons are targeted to black women, but a lot of them also often could apply to anyone, right? You know what's been most interesting about this book? The book was written for anyone who's not a white guy. So that's like not just black women, but the number of rich white men who've really liked the book who endorsed it, who supported it. So Steve Case, who's amazing. And he was kind of like, you know, these are things I didn't even think about, especially as we have people of color in our portfolio and not understanding the challenges, like at a real granular level that they have to go through. He's like, now I'm like a little bit more aware. One of the things you acknowledge in the book pretty forcefully at one point is that entrepreneurship isn't necessarily for everyone. Now, at Master Scale, we're often encouraging entrepreneurial thinking everywhere. Are we making a mistake in that? You know, there's a bit of a cult of entrepreneurship right now, right? I think there's a difference between being an entrepreneur and entrepreneurial thinking. And entrepreneurial thinking, you can bring into anything that you're doing. It's thinking big. It's thinking outside the box. All of those things can be brought into any job. But being an entrepreneur, you know, as a sort of occupation or even a vocation is a whole different sort of ball of wax. And being an entrepreneur, you have to be tough. You have to be very comfortable with failure. I talk about this a lot in the book of like, as an entrepreneur, you're going to fail. For some people, the fear of failure is so fatal that they can't take it as a data point. And for them, entrepreneurship may not be the best. And that's okay. That is very, very okay. But for those who can do that, entrepreneurship is an amazing path to let you lead the life that you want to lead. When I sold my company, I'd never seen that much money in my bank before. (laughs) So it kind of like threw me off quite a bit. (laughs) And I would like to stare and like check each day if they were going to take the wire back. I remember going into Chase Bank in Manhattan on 21st and Madison and taking out money. The teller who was African-American and he brings up my account and he was like, pause. And he was like, sister, you are doing so well for yourself. You are just doing so well for yourself. And entrepreneurship did that. And I often think of what did that teller say to his family that night? When he saw another African-American come in who had this much money in the bank and what type of possibilities that might have opened up for his family. A lot of businesses have given increased attention to DEI lately, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, particularly at larger organizations. And one of your colleagues said that you have some skepticism about this, about what's lip service and what's really effective. I think my skepticism is well-founded. This is an American problem. This is almost like America's original sin. And until we take a moment and really invest and really do some very hard work, it's not going to be solved. The companies that are tying it to business imperatives, now they're starting to see some real movements. The Microsofts and other folks where as a manager, one of the things you're assessed on is your ability to recruit and retain, which is even more important, diverse talent on your team. But a vast majority are just lip service marketing. I'm afraid that we're going to be five years later and we're going to be right back here and I'm going to be talking to you about my next book and we're going to have that same question. And I'm really concerned about that. I mean, this journey you've been on, like right now, are you more hopeful? Are you frustrated? Are you both? You know, I'm kind of like flowing like water. I'm guarded, but optimistic. 
I think the challenge is that we're in a real historical moment. It's like everything's coming together, I think, right now in our country, in the world, in a very interesting way. So it's both political challenges, it's environmental challenges, it's health challenges, it's interpersonal. There is a philosopher named Valerie Kerr, and she has sort of a saying, which is, what if we're not in the darkness of the tomb, but we're in the darkness of the womb? Meaning, what if we're in this darkness right before we birth something new? And so I have to think in that sort of way, that we're in the darkness of the womb, and that we're going through these really tough challenges to get out and birth something new. I have to believe that, because otherwise, I think it would be very difficult to get up in the morning sometime. You wrote the post on Medium, you know, when Black people win, everyone wins. At the same time, I hear that you're kind of worried that like the money committed to Black founders now, there's a potential for backlash because of where valuations are moving. I think what happened in 2020 is that many of their investors looked at the cap tables. That's the tables of where ownership lies. And they looked at their portfolios and they said, oh, we hadn't invested in anyone Black ever. (laughs) And it became this mad rush to invest in someone Black. And so what happened was that for many venture funds, because of their size, they could only do certain size investments, right? They couldn't do smaller investments. So in order for them to fulfill their needs, they drove up valuations of a lot of startups. The problem is, is that a lot of the companies were pre-seed, meaning they were pre-revenue. They hadn't actually generated revenue and many hadn't generated customers. So the valuations were kind of like whatever this VC wanted. It couldn't be based on an actual number, an actual metric, because they didn't have customers yet. And so now, fast forward two years later, where now everything is getting much tighter and people are starting to look at what your metrics are and their valuations are way too high. But whose fault is that? Like, whose fault is it that their valuations is too high? So there have been a number of amazing companies that have come in at too high valuation and say, I can't invest. And the risk is that this tranche of entrepreneurs are going to be viewed as, oh, they're not actually good business people. Oh, these aren't good businesses because the valuations aren't holding up in the near term. Yeah, that they weren't great businesses. And see, we tried, we told you they don't know how to manage money, or we told you that they're not great business people, when really it was the investor's fault, for the most part, of driving up these valuations in order to justify investments to prove that they're not racist. And it's just such a weird quagmire for a lot of entrepreneurs. I've had a lot of counseling sessions with various entrepreneurs who are really stuck, and particularly entrepreneurs of color, who are really, really stuck, who weren't, you know, told what growth metrics they need to meet. They got $2 million and no one told them that we want to see 25% month over month growth until two years later. And they're like, well, I didn't know that I would have invested differently. I didn't know that was what I was being measured by. And I think that's always a challenge for any entrepreneur who's outside of whatever the mainstream system is, whether you're a woman, whether you're an immigrant, whether you're a person of color, is the goalposts are moved for us. I had a conversation with a great entrepreneur yesterday who's building a company in the hair care space. And I was like, have you thought about like the scale you have to reach to make $10,000 off of this? And no one had ever said that to her, which mind boggles. You have to stop and say, well, before I accept that money, tell me what you actually need. Let's talk about this more. Like, you're so eager to get that support. You just want that support. You're not asking those hard questions ahead of time. Imagine if the max money you've ever had in your bank account was $1,000. 
or even $10,000. And within a month or so, you all of a sudden have a million dollars plus in your bank account. It is a mental shift that happens that I don't think venture or others really quite understand. When you come from a community that has had scarcity, where abundance has not been allowed in many cases, you can rationalize it, you can intellectualize it, you know it's yours. But man, if you've never seen six zeros in your bank account that didn't have a decimal in there someplace, you know, it is an out-of-body experience. So I think it's an unfair burden to put on these entrepreneurs to somehow say this to people who have power and access to unimaginable amounts of wealth, to say to them, I don't want your money, or you know what, tell me a little bit more about the strings attached to this money. And I know this to be true because there have been times where I've turned down money from people who are very powerful white men who literally were insulted that I did not want their money or insulted that I asked questions about what is the cost of this money to me? Like, what what do I need to do in return? What are your expectations around this money? Because I just want to be clear. So if the expectation is you're giving this to me for a marketing reason, just to say that you invested in someone Black, Great, I'll take it. But I want to make sure two years later, you're not coming and questioning why I didn't reach some certain marketing things or certain growth metrics because that wasn't what the deal was. You weren't giving me the money for the growth metrics. You were giving me it for your own marketing. Right. The risk is that the implications of all this systemically is that it reinforces some misassumptions about what Black entrepreneurs can deliver, right? What Black women entrepreneurs can deliver. It does. I'm very conscious and aware each day of the power that I have in terms of being able to really support and help someone get to the next level. I think for a lot of my white male colleagues, they don't see it that way. The question isn't like how to get rid of the privilege. It's like, how do you use it to give other people the privilege? How do you transfer a little bit of your privilege to those who don't have it? We all have this power. We all are a little bit ahead of someone else. Like I said, I'm a venture capitalist. I manage large sums of money and I know I have the power to help people in really profound ways. And it's a responsibility that I take very seriously. For me, even if I'm not going to invest in you, if we're in a meeting together, I'm going to give you feedback that hopefully will help you get to the next step. What's at stake for Genius Guild right now? For Genius Guild is really proving out our thesis. You know, venture capital is a long game. The horizon is seven to 10 years. (laughs) You know, I find when you're a person of color, like people want a return like tomorrow, but that's not how the system works. And one of the things I try to do with Genius Guild is make sure that we hold space for us to get the same amount of opportunities and runway that everyone else gets. We're developing a project around childcare. Everyone, even like super wealthy people are having problems with childcare. And there has been very little innovation around that. But it's a problem that everyone experiences. We're also looking at things around urban mobility. Most people who live in urban communities, particularly in middle class to lower income communities, can't afford electric cars and can't afford to retrofit their houses to have their chargers in their garage. There isn't a lot of charging stations in communities. And yet... Electric cars are here. They're not the future, they're the present. And they're going to be the most economic, probably, ways of transport. How do we make it so that people who are in these communities also have the same access to these sort of technologies? 
So those are all the things that we're working on in Genius Guild. And they're simple, but they're really big ideas. Anything we haven't touched on, haven't asked you about? When you're an entrepreneur of color, a woman entrepreneur, anyone who's like kind of outside this sort of thing, it's really important to know that the universe is conspiring for your greatness. And I say that because it can get to be so hard and you could feel like you're just kind of like walking up this hill and you just can't ever get to the top of it. But know that there are people and places and things that want you to win and know that the universe really wants you to win, even when it doesn't seem like it. And I'm a living example of that. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you so much. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. It's hosted by me, Bob Safian, Masters of Scale's editor-at-large. Masters of Scale host is Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Jordan McLeod. Our head of content and production is Lori Hoffman. Our producer is Marie McCoy Thompson. Scripts by Alex Morris and Tucker Ligursky. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Gray, Emily McManus, Adam Heiner, Colin Howarth, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, Sammy Aputa, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tartar, Leah Saramedis, Charlie Manessis, Chinemia Zaquena, Aria Finger, and Saida Sapieva. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode. And please subscribe to our email newsletter. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership.